You're listening to Uprooted, the podcast from the Institute for Agriculture and Trade Policy. I'm Josh Wise. Over the last weekend, the day being the 2nd of October, uh, the text of the uh, renegotiated NAFTA agreement came out and it's no longer NAFTA, it's the US-Canada-Mexico agreement. uh, but uh, it's been a kind of a chaotic 48 hours uh, between when they said they would release the text on Friday and when it came out on Sunday night. Um, and uh, here to talk with me about it is IETP Senior Attorney Sharon Treat. Uh, Sharon, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Josh. So Sharon, there was a lot going on up until the end when the text came out really late on Sunday night. Uh, the only way I actually knew it had been released is that I couldn't fall asleep and so I got up and I checked my email and there were like 20 emails saying, hey, the text came out. Um, but uh, just take us through real, um, why it was so chaotic. At the end. Well, I mean, basically the, the U.S. Uh, trade representative in the Trump administration decided to cut a deal with Mexico that didn't include Canada, even though Canada had been part of the original NAFTA and had been negotiating alongside Mexico and the U.S. for, you know, the last year, pretty much. Uh, so this agreement came out. Uh, it was not yet, you know, publicly out, but it was um, announced. And at that time, you know, under the Trade Promotion Authority, which we call Fast Track, which are the rules that Congress has put in place as to how you uh, review and vote on trade agreements, once uh, a text is final that's supposed to be um, released um, to Congress after 30 days, and there's a 30-day period um, where the different advisory committees are supposed to review the text and weigh in on it. So there was a lot of pressure in that the U.S. and the current uh, Mexican government wanted to ink this agreement uh, quickly. And Canada was not yet on board. I think that it was uh, being used as a negotiating tactic to get Canada to agree to things that they had been resistant to agree to. And, you know, it all came down to the wire. So we were told that the, uh, I'm on one of those advisory committees representing state and local governments, and we had to get our reports into the government uh, by the 27th of uh, September. We were told you know, this is going to be released on Thursday, it's going to be released on Friday, uh, and then it was finally released, you know, as you said, Sunday night. I'm like, you, I went to bed. <laughs> so, so I was reading my emails at, at five in the morning. <laughs> so I, you know, who, who knew? Uh, it kind yeah. of went, yeah, it kind of went from, you know, all of the news reports and everything we're saying, no, there's huge differences. Canada can't possibly come to an agreement on this um, within this time frame. To oh yes, Canada's negotiating madly, and and they have now agreed to um, you know join the agreement and have given up on a number of the things that they previously uh, refused to budge on, and for very good reasons actually. Yeah, um, and I, uh, we'll we'll get into those later. But the, the reactions to the text coming out amongst of the organizations that we work with and in general um, in kind of civil society uh, has been, well, there were some improvements, uh, but it didn't go far enough on labor and environmental enforcement. Um, On environmental enforcement, it maybe went backwards. Um, 
but then also, uh, you know, in which we've we said, you know, a big chunk of the text is probably going to be language from TPP. Um, and in fact, a lot of the language was from the Trans-Pacific Partnership, um, which Trump, you know, railed against during the campaign. So um, uh, what was, uh, talk about the stuff that was in there that just kind of came right out of TPP. Uh, well, there's an awful lot. I mean, everything from the food safety provisions, some of which have been bumped up from the TPP, not in a good way, but in a way that really favors agribusiness and sort of corporate um, interests, things like, you know, uh, the interests that we've seen that have sped up the inspection lines, for example, uh, and slaughterhouse lines, for example, that kind of thing, to um, provisions dealing with um, trade secrets, which will prevent access to information on, for example, agricultural uh, pesticide, um, health and safety studies. Uh, there's provisions that probably make it harder to do labeling. Um, they're not the really terrible provisions that were leaked that had to do with um, junk food labeling. Um, and I think because it was leaked, you know, that just couldn't, it was unacceptable <laughs> for that to go in. And we've written about that. But there was a lot of text in the TPP itself that we were very concerned about at the time that the Trans-Pacific Partnership was uh, being negotiated that would make it more difficult to uh, label food, whether it's for country of origin labeling or whether it's for uh, information uh, for consumers about what's in those uh, products. Those are there. There's a huge new section that's over 12 pages long that has to do with something called regulatory um, cooperation. It's actually called Good Regulatory Practices, which is all about um, putting in place a lot of behind the scenes um, opportunities, I think, for uh, industry to come in and, and shape uh, what regulations look like and really promote deregulation, including a provision that actually um, would provide opportunities for industry to come in and say we should just get rid of regulations because they're too trade restrictive and start a process on that. Um, so, you know, there's a lot there that is directly from the TPP, but actually um, even more concerning. I mean, um, an example of that would be um, provisions around health, access to health care and affordability of medicines. Uh, these provisions were in the TPP. They were so uh, toxic to the uh, countries that were participating in that negotiation that, that when they did the TPP without the U.S., the TPP-11, they suspended those provisions. Now they're right back into NAFTA and made even um, worse <laughs> in terms right. of making, yeah. And so the, when they, um, you know, when they talked about the Trans-Pacific Partnership being a 21st century agreement, what they were really talking about is including all of these, these, these things um, that weren't, weren't in uh, Na the old NAFTA, for example, right? So in, in, in many ways, this renegotiation of NAFTA um, is further entrenching corporate power in global trade systems, right? Right. I mean, I think there's no question about that. And, you know, especially with the dynamic where you had the U.S. really kind of overpowering in some degrees, I think, the Mexican negotiators and getting them to agree to a lot of stuff that was hard fought in the TPP and ultimately didn't end up in the final agreement that Mexico and Canada were part of, that the U.S. wasn't part of. 
So, you know, that may have been a negotiating strategy, but it's a strategy that really benefits corporate power, as you say, and it's not about making things better for, you know, average people. Now, I, I think that said, we need to be fair and say there are some provisions in here that do go in a more, um, a better direction and are, are positive changes, but, you know, we're going to have to be looking at this whole agreement, all 34 chapters and multiple annexes and side letters and seeing, you know, does the weight of all these other provisions that are really entrenching corporate power, making food safety less safe, um, you know, basically pushing uh, climate change in a, in a bad direction and limiting options to control it, and, you know, all the other things that I talked about, um, are those going to be offset by some of the, you know, things that I would say really are modernization in a positive direction that might benefit people. Right. And so the, the biggest one um, sort of that moved in the right direction was the, I don't know if it's removal, but reconfiguring of the investor state dispute settlement so that it's more limited in scope. Um, you know, this is the provision where corporations could sue countries for the loss of future expected profits. What is that? How did that mechanism end up in the new agreement? Um, and I see you're staying away from the, 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 the very musical sounding name of, of the agreement. <laughs> the USMCA? USMCA. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. Um, well, uh, the really good part is that uh, it is phased out for Canada. There's a three-year period during which all of these Canadian companies can file uh, ISDS cases. Uh, and, of course, there's already some threats by Canadian companies, both like on the Keystone pipeline against the U.S. And uh, just recently, you know, there was a threat by a Canadian aquaculture going after the, the Washington State Legislature for new uh, legislation on aquaculture. So there's still some potential for bad things to happen there, but it would be phased out. With respect to Mexico, uh, essentially... There's uh, a, a narrower um, version of ISDS that, that limits the, the type of claims. And I think one of the most um, significant of that is it limits the, what we it's called indirect expropriation. Some people called it, um, you know, when you go in and basically say, this regulation has essentially taken my property, okay, whatever that might be. Um, and that could be any kind of regulation. So, um, it has limited that, and that is definitely a good thing. However, there's a second part of this which um, continues the existing um, ISDS full scale, all of the claims that are currently available for a series of industries, including the oil and gas industry, energy industry, telecommunications, infrastructure, um, and um, I think there's one more in there. So there's, you know, a broad list that are still going to have this available, and that's between the U.S. and Mexico. And certainly from, like, a climate change point of view, I mean, these would be the industries that, especially oil and gas and energy, that most are contributing to that. And so the concerns that we had and others that this ISDS mechanism would really restrict the ability, um, uh, you know, to... to address climate change in a really significant way, I think still is there to the extent that those um, issues are arising between Mexico and the U.S. And um, are there any other provisions that you would say moved in the right direction? 
You know, there's some additional provisions in the labor chapter relating to forced labor and slavery um, and um, relating to um, labor rights in Mexico for uh, workers to be able to collectively bargain. I think the question there um, for many of the folks who are really focused on, on the labor rights and, and those issues is how enforceable that is. It is technically enforceable, but will there be the rules domestically, both in the U.S. and in Mexico, that would make it a real um, protection? And that remains to be seen still. Um, but that certainly is a benefit. And then there were a number of changes made around um, auto parts and how much content would be from the three countries and the wages of the workers that were making um, those auto parts. And that potentially uh, could be a benefit um, to um, auto workers by raising up Mexican wages, assuming that those companies don't try to get out of that provision by putting their manufacturing in some other country that's not covered uh, by this, like China and, and, and mm -hmm. you know, like that. So that is certainly a, you know, a, a significant kind of thing for um, the auto industry. There's no doubt about it for auto workers. Uh, but in terms of workers generally, uh, it's, it's not so clear, particularly with the regulatory changes that could really go after, uh, you know, many things that affect workers pretty significantly, like occupational health and safety and regulation of chemicals and exposure to pesticides and things like that as well. And, and keep in mind, that's the only place where really these rules were changed to look at wages. So every other part of the economy where there's outsourcing, there's nothing being done about it in this agreement. And so um, I want to talk about uh, dairy in a minute, but I actually had a follow-up question on that because ultimately Congress has to uh, pass implementing legislation. And, you know, we, I remember just during the TPP campaign, we would talk a lot about how, you know, these trade agreements really override local attempts to create you know, worker safety or other types of regulations that are in the public interest. So for some of that, you know, occupational health and safety stuff, you know, would the implementing legislation essentially kind of preempt some of that, the work that's being done at the state and local level? Um, I'm not really sure. I mean, a lot of the language doesn't directly um, cover below the federal level, but some of it does. And so it's kind of a case-by-case situation. The concern is even when it doesn't cover um, state and local governments and, and it says, well, this section only applies to, you know, the federal governments. Um, if it's a standard that's intended to make the, the, the law like the same between, say, Mexico, U.S. and Canada, and let's say it's a chemical standard, um, and it's like this is what the standard is across the board, I think it will make it much more difficult for um, individual states to come up with a more protective standard or a different labeling uh, requirement, which we do have right now. I mean, California, of course, is the poster child in terms of coming up with labeling about uh, chemical safety for consumers and, and that sort of thing. And I think it does provide additional, potentially, opportunities, at least if I was a corporation, I'd be, you know, searching through this agreement to try to come up with uh, additional um, arguments to go after uh, those local and state um, provisions because the whole, you know, focus of this agreement is basically having the same policies across the three countries. And so if you have, 
you know, provincial governments or, or, or state governments that are coming up with different standards. I, I mean, I would think that, uh, you know, potentially there is, um, you know, uh, perhaps different additional challenges that, that could be pursued. And certainly, just from my own personal experience, I mean, I served in the legislature for a number of years. You frequently have, um, you know, lobbyists for these uh, chemical companies and others coming into a legislature and making, you know, sort of these sweeping statements like, well, you can't do this because it is in violation of some trade agreement. And, you know, most <laughs> legislators really don't know a whole lot about these trade agreements. They hear this kind of thing. The lawyers for the committee are kind of like, oh, maybe we better not do anything about this. So it has that kind of chilling effect um, on the local and state level, um, you know, and, and I think we're likely to see a lot more of that based on what's in this agreement. Right. And, you know, even though uh, the investor state dispute settlement has been kind of reformed, um, the, you know, a lot of the labeling cases that come to my mind came from the WTO and state to state disputes, which is still basically what can happen as an enforcement mechanism under the USMCA or the new NAFTA, right? Yeah, no, there's a whole, there's a whole dispute settlement chapter that is um, US, Canada, and Mexico um, doing those kinds of challenges like the WTO and the WTO is still there. And, you know, you mentioned uh, country of origin labeling, but, you know, in terms of state policies that have been challenged, I mean, there are pending um, at least notices about cases relating to, for example, state uh, energy uh, standards and um, rules around renewable energy and solar and things like that. So that's going on. I mean, that's already under current rules. There's nothing in this agreement that uh, would, <laughs> would, would change that dynamic except you know, quite likely to push it in the other direction to be even more restrictive on what state and local governments can do. And I guess what I would emphasize is it's given the 34 chapters and the hundreds and hundreds of pages. I mean, there's a lot of text to go through and try to understand what the implications are. And this is really a very early read on it um, that I'm giving you right now. But I think that it, it is something that we're really going to have to, you know, look at and figure out what all of the implications are, including on state and local governments. Because that is generally where, you know, the envelope has been pushed. I mean, just uh, today I was hearing the news about California being sued around net neutrality. Well, that's an example where, you know, you have a state that is saying, no, we're going to protect consumers, uh, even if the federal government isn't. And California has a history of that, but so does Vermont and Maine and, you know, many states uh, have really um, and pushed the envelope there. And as a result, you know, those state policies often end up resulting in stronger federal policies ultimately because, you know, the federal government finally takes notice and says, uh-oh, guess we have to do something. Right. Um, so one of the real sticking points uh, between the U.S. and Canada was this issue of can dairy supply management. Uh, Canada uh, limits the amount of dairy that's produced and ultimately farmers receive a fair price. Um, the U.S. wanted to crack into that market, um, you know, ostensibly to help American dairy farmers because our policies encourage massive overproduction and very low prices. Um, it's unlikely that, you know, even if they had completely dismantled uh, Canadian dairy supply, that it really would have made a big difference for American dairy farmers, but it was kind of a pet peeve issue for Donald Trump. Um, and eventually Canada did give a little bit on dairy supply. Uh, what happened there? 
Well, what they did, as I understand it, is that they um, adopted some of the provisions that had been agreed to in the TPP. <laughs> and, you know, so, and, and what the focused on wasn't dismantling the entire um, supply management system, but it was to particularly focused <clears throat> on a couple of classes of milk. And there was this one class in particular, class seven, which actually is like a dried form of milk. And the Canadians had priced that at a very low um, level. And the American companies felt that it was in competition with them. I mean, I, you know, so this was one of the major gives, you know, from the Canadian side. And I've been reading a lot of the Canadian press today and dairy farmers in Quebec and Ontario are saying, look, this is the death by a thousand cuts. And, you know, the fact is that the Canadians did agree to some similar things in the TPP that they went forward with, with all these other, you know, these 10 other countries. Um, it, it doesn't, in of itself dismantle the system, but it also probably doesn't do a heck of a lot for, for U.S. dairy companies either, uh, because the Canadian market is very small. And, you know, I, I actually heard, uh, I live in Maine, and I heard on the radio our, our commissioner of agriculture touting this as being so great, um, opening up the dairy market, and then he had to admit that, well, actually, you know, Maine doesn't produce this dried milk. That's not what we do. We have local small farms who make you know, like value-added yogurt and cheese, you know, and that has nothing to do with it. So, you know, there's sort of this larger message that is kind of back up the fact that this is this great agreement, but when you dig down into the details, it's not terribly clear that there's a whole lot of benefit on the U.S. side, and certainly on the Canadian side, it does, you know, start to pull even further apart um, a system which, you know, the Canadian uh, area farmers are also struggling, but doing better it seems than in the U.S. Yeah, and you know, our um, colleague Sophia Murphy was uh, interviewed by the Canadian Broadcasting and you know, her, her argument was basically that even with granting more access to the Canadian dairy market, not just to the U.S., but other countries as well and through the CPTPP, you know, <laughs> in New Zealand, it wasn't, it wasn't necessarily gonna drive the price down for goods. Um, and we've sort of seen that in trade agreements in general, right? Where uh, what's happened is the, the price stays the same, but the profit margin gets higher, right? So it could it could essentially be a situation like that. Well, yeah, I think that's right. And I also think, you know, when you look at um, agriculture as a whole in this country and whether this particular agreement, you know, is going to benefit or not, um, you know, the big issue right now is all these tariffs that have been put on with this retaliatory, you know, back and forth with China, which is, has nothing to do with, by and large, the agreement just kept the same tariff structure that was in place with the original NAFTA. So, you know, one of the things I find somewhat bizarre is all this touting of how we've achieved this great thing by keeping what was already in the NAFTA the same, you know, in terms of the tariffs. I mean, so it was kind of like a created, you know, self-created crisis, I guess, when um, President Trump said, well, I'm going to pull every, you know, the U.S. out of NAFTA unless you guys come to the table. People came to the table, and at least with respect to the tariffs, they're back where they were. So <laughs> it doesn't, you know, it was a lot of sort of sturm and drang and, and, and stress, I think, for, for the agricultural community to, to deal with these kinds of, you know, threatened changes. Um, well, meanwhile, all these tariffs are going up and down and, and being challenged over 
uh, quite apart from NAFTA in, in this big trade war that's ongoing with China. Right. Yeah, it's, <laughs> it, it, it really seems like with regard to agriculture, there's a lot of bluster for pretty much uh, nothing concrete that they can say that's been done for farmers, you know, aside from this very, very small giveaway in Canadian dairy. Um, are there any other uh, provisions related to agriculture or food or farming that are worth noting? Um, no, there probably are. I mean, as I said, I really just need to, to dig into it. I, I think there's a lot on food safety that we need to be paying attention to. Um, another area where there's a whole new um, section that was also in the TPP, but I don't know if it uh, made it into the final um, agreement, has to do with agricultural biotechnology and basically putting in um, provisions to try to streamline uh, the approval of uh, biotech, GMO, gene-edited um, products. And so that, that's a concern, and that also has one of these regulatory cooperation provisions where, you know, basically encourages industry to sit at the table with uh, regulators and move towards this system. And this is what they call modernization. So there's provisions like that that I think um, we should be paying attention to and, and see, you know, exactly what they do. Um, and I think that's a big one for a lot of people who, who pay attention to agriculture and food issues. And so, you know, it's, it's interesting, you know, hearing you talk about, well, you know, I've done this cursory reading, it's going to take a long time to really dig through it. And, and, you know, you have a level of access to this text that very, very few people do being a cleared advisor for on the state and local government committee. Um, and, you know, my understanding, you know, you haven't been able to talk a whole lot about it because you're basically accessing, you know, classified information. Um, but uh, is that it was a really frustrating process uh, in the last 30 days trying to actually, you know, figure out what it, what's even worth noting and not noting and how do we get information and how do we ask questions about this. So like talk about that process of actually trying to craft a report. Yeah, well, it's a terrible system. It's a terrible system and it was made worse by, you know, this kind of crazy, you know, take a look at this text and write a report in 30 days. Um, oh, by the way, maybe it's not U.S., Mexico, maybe it's U.S., Mexico, Canada, but we can't tell you which provisions necessarily will be in there for sure if Canada joins. So you're trying to write a report not even knowing whether it's a three-country or a two-country agreement. I will say this, I think pretty much, I haven't gone and read all of the reports, but the ones I was familiar with, they pretty much all started off saying, well, this should be an agreement with Canada too, so we certainly hope you're going to do that. It may be that that, you know, was a factor in the U.S. coming to terms because it wasn't just, you know, Canada that, that gave in on stuff. I mean, the U.S. actually did uh, agree to, you know, say, well, we just won't demand X, Y, and Z to get this agreement. Um, so it was difficult. You know, you're not allowed to print it out from your computer. And maybe it's just me, but I have a heck of a time trying to read, you know, legalese, uh, you know, on a computer screen and trying to compare it to what I knew was in the TPP that we had already analyzed and decided to see, oh, is there an additional word or two or is the whole thing taken out? And then some sections that were there when we wrote a report, when I went back and looked at the final text, 
they weren't there anymore or they were moved around to different sections. So when I say, you know, I really need to still go through this, um, just even to figure out, oh, is that section I thought was really terrible still in there or did that somehow go away after Canada joined? And, you know, and there's the ongoing problem, which is a problem with uh, particularly for civil society members of these committee, of few, which there are very few, um, but we're not allowed to, you know, I'm trying to read this whole agreement that covers, you know, everything from labeling to agricultural, you know, tariffs to, you know, uh, digital trade. There's a whole new chapter just on regulating digital trade that people who care about Facebook privacy might want to take a look at. Uh, and, you know, you just don't, not, most people don't have all of that expertise and you don't have the authority, you're not allowed to call up someone who's an expert on intellectual property law and say, okay, can you tell me what this section does with respect to accessing information about an agricultural chemical, you know, a pesticide and, you know, whether we can get the reports or not. I mean, you just don't have that. So you're doing the best you can. And I'm really glad that the text is now public so that people who aren't on these committees who are in academic institutions and housed in, you know, many uh, nonprofits and other organizations that have a lot of expertise can now dig into that text and uh, help us all figure out, um, you know, what it does, including everybody else at IATP. <laughs> right. Yeah, I know. I think we're going to have to do a whole series of podcasts on these, you know, specific uh, chapters in NAFTA or specific aspects. Um, in addition to all the writing that it seems like we're going to be doing in the next couple of months. Um, so just briefly to, to close, walk us through the timeline here. Congress will, won't vote on this, obviously, until the next Congress after the election. But what's going to happen in the next couple of months? Um, because even, they could even change things, you know, <laughs> to an extent, right? Yeah, that's what I'm hearing. And, and there's some things that even, you know, in the last just today came across my email where someone said, this like looks like a big mistake that was carried over from the TPP. It shouldn't be this way. And you're just hoping, boy, I hope in the rush of the moment, they, they didn't mess up and, you know, leave things in here that, that were big mistakes. So hopefully things still can be changed um, for the better. Uh, but basically, um, it now has gone to Congress with these advisory committee reports. They're all posted online so people can go and see what the chemical industry has to say, as well as the labor committee uh, about these different provisions. And then it, um, the International Trade Commission is required to come out with its um, uh, assessment of the economic impact of the study and uh, of the um, proposed um, agreement. And I know that with the Trans-Pacific Partnership, that took Quite a quite a long period of time. I think that there's a deadline. There is a deadline on it. I don't have the exact time frame in front of me, um, but it's it's a it's a couple of months um, that they they have that time. And if um, the ITC wants to take that full period of time, um, then they certainly can do that. So then after that report is done, you know, it goes off to Congress, and generally Congress holds you know public hearings, uh, committee hearings on the agreement and um, weighs in on it. And they also have to pass implementing legislation, which, you know, in to some degree, for example, there may be things that aren't quite what's in current US law right now that need to be changed in order to be consistent with this trade agreement. 
In addition, there may be provisions, for example, I mentioned about the labor chapter and the implementation of it. There may be provisions that um, folks would like to get into implementing legislation to make sure that those um, labor protections are actually effective and not just, you know, written on a piece of paper. So, you know, what's the procedure for actually filing a complaint? Is there a timetable? And, you know, who does it? I mean, these are things that aren't laid out uh, in the trade agreement. So that has to happen. So that's a lot of things, and it is going to be after the election, and we don't really know what's going to happen that, at that time anyway. Um, I mean, at least the good news is that it can't be rushed so fast that we won't even have time to analyze it. We will have time to analyze it. We're going to obviously get started as quickly as we can with getting out pieces of information to the public, but there will be a little bit of time here to figure out what it all does. All right. Well, Sharon, thanks a lot for joining me on the podcast today. You're welcome. My pleasure. You've been listening to Uprooted, the podcast from the Institute for Agriculture and Trade Policy. Uh, For more on what you've heard today, including to read all of IATP's writing on NAFTA since its uh, inception of the first one uh, over 25 years ago, you can visit our website at www.iatp.org. This podcast is available for download on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, Uh, and other places. If you like what you've heard, please give us a positive rating. And if you have any questions about the show, you can email jwise at iatp.org. Thanks for listening.